I'm delighted to bring you this chat with Sir Stephen Timms, Chair of the Work and Pensions Committee, MP for East Ham, and a man who has served in an impressive list of roles across work and pensions and the Treasury over the past 25 years. I hope you enjoy listening. We are now recording. Stephen Timms, thank you very much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Tom. Thank you. So probably most people in the financial services industry do know who you are, in case anyone doesn't. I, w- I was looking back, you were you were first elected in 94 in a, in a right. by-election. Yeah. That's um, correct. Getting in ahead of the Blair wave in 97. So it must have been a good time to become a Labour MP. It was a great time. Yes, I remember being asked about the mood in that by-election campaign in, in 1994. And I said it was the first time I could remember campaigning in New where I've been active in the Labour Party since the end of the 1970s. The first time I could remember people saying to me that they'd always voted Conservative, now they were going to vote Labour. Previously, it had always been the other way around. We were kind of losing support, but suddenly in 1994, things were moving the other direction. Yeah, and that period of British politics through the mid-90s after Labour so nearly won in the early 90s and then didn't and Major mm. somewhat unexpectedly won. But then by the time we got mm. to 97, I mean, the weight of expectation there was just huge, wasn't yeah. it? It was. Yeah. Of course, we never, I, you know, people like me, we'd, we kind of felt that we'd thought we were going to win so many times and then our hopes were dashed. So we weren't sure in 97 what was going to happen. But anyway, it all it all worked out fine. And uh, that was a, a great election. Extraordinary moment. Yeah. And then thereafter, you've, I mean, over the last sort of what, more than 20 years now, 25 years, you've, you've bounced across a variety of roles in and out of government, obviously initially in government and then more recently out across mostly Treasury and DWP. Why is that? Why, how, how did that come to be? Well, I was a minister for 12 years of the 13 in our government. And uh, I don't know, Tony Blair appointed me, first of all, to what was then called the Department for Social Security, subsequently DWP, after six months in a role as Minister for Disability Benefits. He appointed me Minister for Pensions at the end of 1998, beginning of 1999. Uh, And from there, I went to the Treasury for a couple of years, came back to DWP again as Pensions Minister in 2006. I had one year as Schools Minister, which was a bit out of the sort of generality of what I was doing. But apart from that, it was it was in DWP, in the Treasury, and also in the Department of Trade and Industry. Yes, bit of business, yeah. And did you was that ever you putting your hand up and saying I'd like to do this job, or was it just you know you get told you're you're, you're doing this now, Stephen? I mean, largely it was I I was told. I mean, there were some times when I thought that what I expressed interest in was reflected. So, for example, Gordon Brown sent me back to the Department for Business at the end of our term of government and, and that was because he knew I was interested in some of the things that we were looking at there but mostly you know you got you got the phone call we were told this is what you're doing and that was that pack up your intro and uh, and, and move yeah. on 
And you're now chairing the Work and Pensions Committee. We've got a, a general election coming up and just possibly Labour, uh, I mean, they look more likely to move back into power than any time in, in since 2010. Would you go back into government? How do you, how do you find calling the government to account as opposed to being in government? I, I'd be delighted to be a minister in a, a Labour government again. Whether that opportunity will arise, we'll have to wait and see. But if the offer came, certainly I'd, I'd be very keen, yeah. And chairing a committee now, I mean, the committee system has evolved over years. I'm interested in your reflections on how, how effective do you find it? Do you think the whole structure works well as a, as a sort of scrutiny system for, for calling the executive to account? I think to some extent it does work well. I mean, what's been pleasing to me is that in our committee, which has a conservative majority reflecting the makeup of parliament, as all the select committees do at the moment, and reflecting on some quite controversial topics, maybe less controversial in the pensions area than in, for example, thinking about universal credit, we have been able to come up with a consensus view on everything we've looked at so far. And I think that's quite powerful to be able to say to the government that on a unanimous cross-party basis, committee with a conservative majority, we think the following changes should be made. So that, I think, does work well and is quite powerful and effective. The disappointing aspect of it is that the government frequently rejects out of hand mm. the uh, recommendations that we make. And I suppose I would welcome us having a bit more teeth, a little bit more ability to put pressure on the government to, to make the sort of changes that we're calling for than we have at the moment. When one reads government responses to committee reports, quite often they're just filled with lines along the lines of, well, we're going to do this and we're doing that and, and, and nothing to see here. When you talk about the committee having more teeth, what would that look like? I think a number of elements to that. I mean, one is, I think it would be helpful if the government felt under a bit more of an obligation to welcome recommendations rather than simply rejecting them out of hand. Now, partly that's a reflection of the arithmetic in Parliament. There's a big Conservative majority at the moment. If the majority was a smaller one, then there would be more pressure on the government to mm. say, yeah, well, you know, to say yes rather than, than no. So that would make a difference. I think there are other things that could be done. For example, at the moment, we have powers to require external organisations to provide documents to us. And we've used those powers on one or two occasions. And that's quite an effective power. We, we don't have power to require the government to give us any documents. Now, I think we could be given that power. I don't think that would cause any great difficulty, but it would increase the leverage of the committee. I think the other area is we, we do carry out pre-appointment hearings for key officials like mm. the chair of the pensions regulator, and we make a recommendation to the government. The government is free to ignore our recommendation and go ahead with what it wanted to do in the first place. I, I think giving us a bit more teeth uh, giving us the right of veto, for example, over an appointment would help to strengthen the role of the committee. That's really interesting. I can see the executive might feel uncomfortable about that, but actually, particularly the, 
the disclosing papers, I think that would have to be framed quite carefully to ensure that stuff that should stay private remains private. So yes, uh, that, I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, there are ways of describing documents. What is clearly ministerial advice shouldn't be published. I agree with that. But there's lots of documents in government that could and actually in terms of the government's own current policy should be published but isn't published they ought to be okay let's just talk a bit about the current work of the committee so i want to start with pension freedoms which is an area you you've focused quite a bit of the committee's work on 2014 2015 it was a very political decision to introduce pension freedoms it really dropped a bomb into the whole retirement system I mean, look, it's done now, but I'm, I'm interested in how well you think the aftermath of pension freedoms has been managed in terms of the way the government's behaved subsequently and the regulators and the consumer protections around that. Well, I was one of those who was doubtful when George Osborne announced the pension freedoms and was worried about some of the effects that it would have. Looking back, and we started our inquiry sort of on the fifth anniversary in 2020, and looking back then over what had happened over the previous five years, it struck us that really there wasn't anybody who who said this shouldn't have happened. I think there were considerable gains from the freedoms, and certainly no one has said to us that we should put the clock back. But some of the concerns that people like me raised in 2015 have indeed materialised as problems and, and, and challenges which are by no means entirely resolved. So the first of our three inquiries on the, the theme of the pension freedoms protecting pension savers five years on from the pension freedoms. The first of our inquiries was about pension scams. Mm. And that's a very big and troubling problem, which hasn't been resolved. We've made some recommendations. And to be fair, the government has made some changes in response to our recommendations. And I hope that we will see that problem being addressed effectively in the next two or three years, as it hasn't been so far. I was with the chief executive of a big financial institution earlier this week who was estimating that consumers in the UK are about 10 times more likely to be a victim of fraud than is typical in other comparable countries. We've got a real problem there, and and, and pension pots clearly are a very popular target for that's where the money scammers. is yeah yeah so we, we needed to make some some changes there and some changes are in hand you talked in, in your report on the pension scams about the need for for better data and better intelligence sharing and coordination across action fraud and project bloom do you see that happening now is is, is that improving i don't see much sign of the fragmentation that we drew attention to being addressed I'm pleased that Project Bloom's name has been changed, so it doesn't sound now as though it's something to do with floristry. It's now called the the Pension Scams Action Group. But there's definitely more that needs to be done. There's more that needs to be done about fraud across the economy. Action fraud has not been a very effective response to the problem of 
fraud, the very large scale problem of fraud. One of the things we highlighted in the report was the extent to which the scam problem is online. And we recommended that online advertising should be regulated. The government at the time said no. I'm very pleased that thanks to the pre-legislative scrutiny of the online safety bill, the government did eventually concede that point and the most recent draft of the online safety bill does now deal with the regulation of online advertising. And so hopefully that will go ahead. We're expecting to see the online safety bill again in the next week or two. So that I hope will be will be done. I'm sure that will be the end of the story on that. But I mean, it is dreadful that the reports we heard about scams appearing on Google, people reporting them to Google, nothing was done. Months later, somebody innocently saw the advert and lost quarter of a million pounds in a scam. And then eventually Google took the ad down. Why their response has so frequently been so slow is a mystery. We've never got to the bottom of that. But hopefully regulation will force their hand in the future. Well, interesting dynamic that and the extent to which the various online platforms and social media platforms disavow responsibility for what goes on yeah. on their platforms. Yeah. And that, of course, yeah. is, a, is an ongoing tension between government and regulators and the corporations. One of the things that strikes me in all of that is is the difficulty people experience, ordinary people, not financially sophisticated people, the difficulty they experience in distinguishing good from bad. And yeah. I think the complexity of the financial system, we have a well-evolved and sophisticated financial system more so than many other countries, and that is beneficial in some respects, but it leaves the ordinary people behind a lot of the time. Their ability to discern good from bad, I think, is, is really problematic in all of that. Yes, I think people assume that if they find something in a search on Google, it's been vetted in some way, but of course it hasn't. Up till now, all you can tell if you get a, a Google search leading to a particular advertisement, all you can tell is that the person placing that advertisement has paid Google a sum of money, no vetting of any kind at all. And I said, you know, not, not only that, but when Google has been told that it's a scam, it often stays up for, for months. Whether that's because Google wanted to keep the payments coming in or whether it was Google not being well enough organized to deal with the thing that we, we just don't know. But you're right. People see it and assume, well, this must have been checked by somebody. Google is a responsible platform. But this is where I'd like to think that having the stamp of approval of the FCA, this is an FCA regulated product or service should make a difference. Yes. Simplistically, in my mind, if a consumer sees that this is an advisory service or a product that has is under FCA regulation, that should give some real comfort. That, you know, if, if I buy this product or service, it will do what it says on the tin. I think that is absolutely right. And one of the things that we recommended, which the government has now done, is that where somebody applies to the trustees of their defined benefit pension mm -hmm. fund, to move their pot into another provider and where that provider is on the FCA warning list, mm. the trustees should be empowered to say no 
to making the transfer. And, and that is now something that the, the government has, has regulated to deliver. Something else that you highlighted both in the pension scams report and the pension freedoms work that you did was this question of advice and guidance and the suggestion uh, that 60% of people taking their pensions should receive either advice or guidance. And you talked a lot about the stronger nudge. So that too, you know, the, the support that people get, particularly around the, the retirement event, but you know, as also more broadly on pension transfers, that still seems to be an area where there's there's a bit of a shortfall. Yes, there's still a lot to be done about that, and we've been disappointed that the government hasn't so far been willing to sign up to a target for the proportion that should get advice or guidance. When George Osborne announced the pension freedoms, he talked about a guidance guarantee. Well, initially he talked about an advice guarantee and then quickly wrote back from that one. Yeah, well, that's true. But, you know, it, it was a guarantee. The idea was there would be something there that was guaranteed. The outcome of that promise was the PensionWise service and from all the feedback I've seen, PensionWise is a very good service, but hardly anyone Not enough people are using it, exactly. No. Yeah. And, you know, it was sort of 3%, I think, at one stage, that, and probably still is. Now that the, the stronger nudge has been introduced, the trials suggest that'll go up to 11%. But, you know, it, I guarantee we need to be doing much, much better than that. And we think there is a strong case, at least for trying out the idea that people should be given automatically a pension-wise appointment. And, okay, if they don't want to take it up, they can cancel it. That's fine. But, you know, we need something much closer to the notion which George Osborne appeared to be announcing in 2015 than where we've ended up at the moment. I think there's this scope to use tools and digital engagement better as well. And yeah. I think to, to take a more flexible and, and pragmatic approach to how the guidance is delivered working in partnership with third party services. I think I think there's more that can be done there, but I'm sure yes. maps and others are looking at all of this. Yes. I well I mean the we we're pleased that having originally rejected our recommendation that the FTA should look at the idea of enhanced guidance. Yeah. That they've now said they, they are looking at, at that at the advice guidance boundary. And my colleague Harriet Baldwin, the chair of the, the recently elected chair of the Treasury mm. Select Committee, has just tabled an amendment to the Financial Services and Markets Bill, which would require regulations to enable personalised guidance to be provided. So, I, you know, I think there is movement on, on this and, and hopefully we'll end up in a better place than we have been. We just this week had the, the SCA publish a paper on sort of opening up the door to a bit of advice light. And I think I think their focus there was on people invested in inverted commas in cash and giving them, you know, making opening up advisory channels to get them into advices and so on, which is very much at the simpler end of financial advice spectrum. But, you know, hopefully that will then go on, will be built into, as you say, a broader review of the advice services people can get access to. Yeah. So you've also focused on saving for later life and what the government could be doing to facilitate the accumulation of pension pots. And I mean, I guess the, the standout one there, and the PLSA flagged this up in the work they did recently around this, is 
is the implementation of the 2017 reforms, which we're still waiting yes. for. Yes, we are. We drew attention. This is the most recent report published just in September. So we haven't yet had the government's response to this. Uh, and I'm hoping it'll be a positive response, but you never know. We should get it in the next few weeks. We drew attention to the really spectacular success of auto-enrolment in increasing the proportion of eligible workers saving for a pension from less than half in, in 2012 to 86% by 2020. And that, that really is a, a big success. You know, if you look back over the last few decades, there haven't been that many really spectacular pensions policy successes. This one stands out. And I think the industry is entitled to a, a great deal of, of credit for that success. But as you've been suggesting and others have pointed out, at the moment, too many people who are saving for a pension are not saving enough for the income in retirement that they are hoping for and indeed expecting. I think frequently they, they don't realise they're not saving enough. And that does require further action in policy terms, and in particular, the changes that were recommended in the 2017 auto-enrolment review, and beyond that, raising the level of the minimum auto-enrolment contributions. And we make the point in our report that the middle of the cost of living crisis is not a good time for suggesting to people that they need to start contributing more to their pension. But what we should be doing, we think what the government should be doing is setting out a plan mm. and, and then working to build a consensus around that, that yes, this is what we need to do. And over the next five years or whatever it is, these are the steps we'll be taking to, to get there. And, and I think if that was done, I think a consensus would build and people would recognize this was right and, and, and would be willing to make the sacrifices required step by step to get there. But we haven't yet embarked on that journey and we, we need to. Absolutely agree. And everything I hear, hear and see across the industry suggests that that consensus could be built pretty fast. It simply requires the government to focus its energies on it and you, know, you yeah. think back to the increase in state pension ages, if you've got to give people some slightly unpleasant tasting medicine, announcing something in 1995 that doesn't start till 2010 is a good way to do it. And we could yeah. do the same yeah. thing with yeah. here with this, you know, so let's yeah. lay the groundwork, yeah. put, put a schedule in place and accept that it might not kick in for another few years yet. Because yeah. as you say, yeah. now is not the moment to be asking people more money aside. Yeah. And, and indeed, at the moment, the most recent data does suggest that opting out from auto-enrolment is on the rise. And I guess that isn't a surprise given the pressures that people are under. We just need to keep an eye on that, I think, because up till now, the opt-out rate has been very low. It, it's not high now, but it's, you know, it has started to edge upwards. Hopefully, when pressures ease, it'll come down again. And the pressures on people at the moment clearly are very substantial and um, yeah we, we can't say to people at the moment you need to be contributing more to your pension no indeed and and that still leaves the the self-employed the low earners you know you, i mean you're right autonomous has been a huge success but there are still people falling through the cracks yes the self-employed in particular we, the most recent figures suggest that pension saving amongst self-employed people is down to 16 percent it's fallen very sharply over the last 20 or 30 years, that does require a 
policy response in our view and we think what should happen is that the treasury and dwp should work together on how you could do something like auto enrollment for self-employed people through the tax system or the national insurance system not an easy task but there are various ideas for what could be done we think they need to get together and and start to uh, come up with proposals and, and trials on that so that we've got something going on. The idea that self-employed people will just be encouraged to save for a pension has clearly not worked. We've, we've got to do something better there. Well, that, that fallacy was exposed with, we, we tried stakeholder pensions, or sorry, you, sorry, said we, that was the, initi- the original initiative under the Blair government, stakeholder pensions, but it was all voluntary. And it didn't really land well. Yep. You know, it's yep. in Turner's, of course, Turner Commission's big revelation was look, just put people in and they'll stay there. Yeah. But, but persuading people to save for retirement is not an easy task. No. So, so I, I mean, I agree. Uh, but, but I also see that it needs someone like HMRC to come out to play yeah. and to, to engage yeah. with the problem. I would add in passing, the current pension tax system does not help. Uh, I mean, for half the people, if you ask them is tax relief a good thing, they'll say no, because it's got the word tax in it. I think the whole system of incentivizing people to provide for retirement is not well constructed. And I know it hasn't been done deliberately, but but, but that's where we're at right now. I think that's a fair point. And there are some big questions around. So your current the current work of the committee, I think a lot of people will be interested in in how you're getting on with, with LDI, not least because most of us don't understand it. So so tell me a bit about how that current inquiry is going in terms of your scrutiny of Defined Benefit Pension Scheme Investment Strategies. Well, as you know, this arose from the debacle at the end of September, beginning of October, following the so-called mini-budget, which had the catastrophic, unfortunately, catastrophic impact on the economy, catastrophic long-term impact, I think. But in the very short term, it led to huge volatility in guilt rates and a real problem for pension schemes using LDI products. And I'd be frank, I was not aware of LDI before all this happened. And we thought we ought to take a look at it. The Bank of England has to step in to stave off a catastrophe at the time. And it seems very likely that some pension funds, I don't know which ones, but some suffered quite substantial financial hit as a result of the debacle. Not all, by any means. I know of quite a, a number of funds which actually are in a significantly better position mm. now than they were before in terms of their funding. But some, it seems very likely, would take a serious hit. So we're, we're looking at it and we are receiving a wide range of views on this subject from schemes telling us that their use of LDI over the last eight or nine years has been critical to their success, on the one hand, to others telling us that really this was all, some of the suggested it's a bit of a scam, the whole thing. It's a financial product which wins large fees for some providers in the financial services industry and doesn't do very much to help pensioners at all. So 
a wide range of views and we will need to uh, take account of all of them in coming up with some conclusions, hopefully by early in the new year. Okay, I think there'll be a lot of people interested in where you get to with that one. I'm, I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to just wrap up with a couple of quick questions to just to conclude, if I may. So first of all, something that I think you hinted at in one of your recent reports, would you support the establishment of some kind of sort of standing pensions advisory panel to just kind of create a bit of a North Star in terms of how the country's doing in, in its to, to, to give us a bit of a sense of direction in, in pension saving? I think there is a case for that. I mean, some people have said we should have a new pensions commission mm. on the model of the one that Adair Turner chaired, set up by the initially by Andrew Smith, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions at the time, which did a great job, first of all, in bringing together all of the evidence and providing a broadly accepted view of what the position was, what the problems were. So getting a a consensus around the evidence base, first of all, and then going on from that to make some policy recommendations, primarily auto-enrolment, which turned out to be very broadly accepted as well and have been the basis of the successful policy that's followed since. So some people have said we should do that again. I think the point that that we have been attracted to is that there ought to be a continuing endeavour to look at the evidence, to publish the evidence, to compile the data and make sure that there is a a consensus view on, on what's going on and perhaps in that way to identify areas where policy changes are needed. And of course, the, the Pensions Policy Institute does a lot of really good work in that space, but it's it not does. its not forming a, any kind of official function in that regard. No. I mean, we've seen in the last few months the critical importance of the Office for Budget Responsibility mm. set up by George Osborne. And, you know, something along those lines in the pension space, we think, would have attractions. Interesting. OK, so, so last question. Just where's, where do you think the committee's focus is likely to turn next? You're doing the LDI stuff. I know you've got a number of other inquiries on universal credit and child poverty and so on, which we haven't touched on here. In the, in the pension space, is there anything more on your radar at the moment? Yes, we want to take a, another look at the wider defined benefit pensions world to look at what happens when companies fail. There have been some high profile failures in the last two or three years. Are those arrangements working satisfactorily when failure does occur? Is the way the Pension Protection Fund operates at the moment appropriate for the the challenges we're, we're seeing at the moment? A number of issues around DB pensions that we want to take a a further look at. We haven't mentioned the work that we did before COP26 Mm. on on pension stewardship. I'm sure we're going to want to keep an eye on on what's happening there as as well. So there's going to be plenty of work for the committee to do in in the coming year. Yeah, indeed. And there's a lot of good work going on on stewardship generally and in terms of better transparency and accountability on how pension schemes discharge their responsibilities. Yeah, one of the things we've been keen on there is for international agreement so that not just in the UK, but across the developed world, we can have pension funds 
making a, a, as full as possible a, a contribution to bringing about the, the investments and changes that we're going to need in the economy. Good stuff. That's a positive note to end on. Stephen Timms, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank today. you, Tom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.